Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. On this episode of Red Inca, we look at how England changed their white ball DNA. For that, we get on a man who just finished writing a book about it. Matt Roller, co-author of White Hot, the inside story of England cricket's double world champions. We talk about the COVID third eleven that beat Pakistan, depth charts, scouting, Phil Salt, positivity, franchise league assist, power hitting, and how long it can all last when the current generation ages out. Jeez, I'm glad that you went through the full name there. <laughs> um, okay, 2021, England had to play three ODIs. Well, no one has to play, but uh, England played three ODIs versus Pakistan when uh, the original team and the second team uh, were both unavailable. One had COVID. I can't remember. The other one was probably in, in lockdown for something else. Um, and they had to pick a third team. And you've written basically a whole chapter on that point for your book. Um, so why? <laughs> well, because it's a, a pretty crazy state of affairs. So basically what happened was, um, as you say, they ended up picking a sort of something between a second and a third team. Um, they had a 16-man ODI squad um, that had just played a series against Sri Lanka uh, that ended in Bristol. And at some point over the 24 hours after that last game, uh, the bubble got breached. This was 2021 where it was kind of, um, you know, semi-bubble where people were pretty fast and loose um, and everyone had to self-isolate because I think four players ended up getting diagnosed with COVID so that was 16 players wiped out you obviously had a few injuries around as well um, as everyone does um, and yeah England decided that rather than uh, abandoning the series and uh, you know having to pay broadcasters back they would basically uh, pick a load of players at the last minute uh, test out their depth and ended up hammering a full strength Pakistan side 3-0 um, which was one of the most, I, I think, uh, extraordinary results um, that modern white ball cricket has seen in a bilateral series when you when you think of the players that England were missing. Um, I, and when you look at the side that Pakistan picked with, you know, Shaheen Afridi taking the new ball, Harris Ralph was there, Hassan Ali, Shadab Khan, uh, pretty much a full-strength team. Uh, Baba was captaining as well. Um, and from Tim and I's point of view, we wrote a book on England's white ball revolution from basically from 2015 to 2022 when they become simultaneous holders of both World Cups. And for us, that really summed up how much things have changed in English cricket because even in 2015, when things started going well, um, it was quite hard to you know think if England had a load of injuries, if they missed a couple of players, they would probably be quite short here. They, they relied initially on quite a small core of players. Um, and those guys were, were the main part of that whole 15 to 19 journey. But what happened after that was that style of play filtered down into county cricket, filtered down into England Lions and the 19s teams, all the way down uh, throughout the country, basically. Uh, and you got to a point where um, you had a team that hadn't played together almost at all, coming in under a completely different captain to the one that normally captain England and Ben Stokes. Uh, he sort of rushed back from injury playing basically exactly the same as an England ODI team would. Um, and we thought that was pretty crazy. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the most, I don't know, what did you say, the most surprising, most shocking result. You compared it in the chapter to the Australia A um, situation. For those who don't remember, Australia used to play tri-series um, 
and they had a tri-series set up for Australia, England, Zimbabwe. They decided that England was pretty terrible, but more so they were worried that Zimbabwe wouldn't be good enough. So they inserted Australia A into that um, series. And of course, Australia A were the best team in that series. And uh, had they not have got decimated by some random selections at the end, might have beaten the Australian team. And it really was the team that would go on to be, you know, the dominant Australian team in that next generation. That, if you look at what happens from, was that 94? I want to say 90. I think it was 94-5, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you look from there until 2000 and, wait, let's say 2007, but I suppose you could put 2015. Australia was pretty good at Wipeball Cricket for a long period of time. Um, is That looks like that's the kind of model that England are going for, right? They're not going for one-off team that's very good. They're looking for generational talent. And that's really what this chapter is about. You use the phrase that, that England um, have coined, which is multiple eyes, multiple times. Um, tell me about uh, the eyes and times. So this is basically a sort of uh, a mantra that in underpins England's scouting network. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will have watched Moneyball and will have sort of discarded old school scouting as a concept because of the fact it comes across very badly in that. England think there is, you know, clearly some value to old school scouting in terms of watching players and being able to make judgment calls on them. But they think that, um, trusting one old school scout is a bad idea. And if you aggregate the opinions of a lot of people that you trust and learn to trust over a, a number of years uh, because of the fact that they have, uh, you know, seemingly identified good players and been quite good at identifying talent, um, then that is much better than just having one view, which seems quite intuitive, but I think that sort of underpins uh, that whole idea. So um, I think that's, that's sort of mainly introduced by... Uh, Mo Bobat, who, who has become a pretty influential figure in English cricket, really, since um, particularly since Andrew Strauss took over uh, as director of cricket in 2015. He became player ID lead, which was a, a pretty new role at the time in 2016 and uh, sort of launched England's scouting network as it is today um, in 2017 after the, the North South series that was a Strauss idea. Um, which a lot of people said was, and probably was to some extent, a nice paid holiday and Barbados and uh, Dubai, but I think also, you know, um, clearly kick-started uh, England's, England's scouting network in terms of, um, you know, it had a lot of the white ball set up, went down to those tournaments, uh, looked at a lot of players that um, were sort of on the fringes of the setup and tried to work out how they would fit into a depth chart. So um, working out who England's replacement would be if Joe Root went down on the eve of the World Cup trying to work out who their finisher might be in their T20 team if something happened to, let's say, Ben Stokes at the time or maybe even Josh Butler before he moved up to open um, and basically formulating that into a into a depth chart rather than mm. uh, sort of a list of hunches, quite old school way. Um, a lot of it is probably relatively basic, but I think um, if you look at sort of particularly in white ball cricket where England were in 2014, 2015, around then, where a lot of it was treated as largely an afterthought. Um, it, it's, you know, completely brought them up to speed. Um, and also, I think one of, one of the biggest themes of England's white ball revolution is that, um, you know, if you think of where England should be in any format of cricket based on resources, population, um, you know, particularly resources, I suppose, mm. they should be a pretty competitive team for the most part um, in that it's, a you know, it's not like they're, if you look at how New Zealand do, for example, from a small, from a way smaller country, um, consistently competing in ICC events, England for a long time, much bigger country, um, you know, history of playing cricket, 
uh, invented white ball cricket. I was going to say, invented yeah. red ball uh, limited overs cricket. cricket. And invented T20 cricket. <laughs> um, then they should be doing a lot better than they were, whereas now they're very much sort of after speed and in the, in the sort of, uh, I suppose, the, the category of white ball teams that they should be, I think. Well, you, you talked about scouting before, and and you're right. It's a bit like errors. You know, Crickviz now look at the fielding data, and it's basically just the old-fashioned baseball errors, and we know it's not a particularly good metric, but there was nothing before that, right? Like, mm. So it's the same with scouting. We didn't have any scouting beforehand. I, I would say that the majority of wicketkeepers who've been selected in the history of professional cricket have not been selected by another wicketkeeper who knew anything about the art form at all, right? Like, And England, they had Steve Rhodes, uh, they had Bruce French, and I think they might have had another wicketkeeper out there who was, uh, might have been James Foster, who was literally go out and have a look at the next crop of wicketkeepers, which is kind of what you would always expect cricket to do, but of course, that's not what we did. Um, uh, talk about the depth chart. So, so they come into that. They've now got to pick a third eleven, right? Essentially, yeah, for this yeah. Pakistan game, um, and they they took it almost as a challenge of, and, and this was with the scouting, but also with the data. They end up with one hundred and nine players, right, um, in front of them, and they basically try and pare that down to you know players who are not got COVID, <laughs> <laughs> not in another bubble, um, and and people they want to have a look at. Um, that that seems like the most like no one's ever as far as i'm aware no one's ever done that in cricket before just because you don't usually get thrown into that sort of situation that's almost like a you know an nfl draft room at that point mm. yeah so there's, there's a sort of late night teams call that um england's sort of coaching staff log on to some of them are still in isolation at this point um the you know all the guys from the um performance sort of uh, from the scouting department so people like james taylor who was head scout at the time people like um yeah bobat himself are all on there and, and they basically it sounded like you know they, obviously not having listened into the call but from what everyone says they sort of basically rattled off names pretty quickly when they look through each of their positions they have so england sort of will have uh within their 50 over depth chart they will have um you know a, a list of names who fit under the category attacking opener um yep. and the like Right, Phil Salt, yeah, works. Um, I think Milan was in there as well. It's probably not the most, you know, maybe not the most like for like for say a Jason Roy, but probably fits a similar sort of role to say a Besto, um, in that he can hit gaps pretty well in the power play. Uh, they put uh, Zach Crawley in as their as their quote unquote classy number three, uh, which was the, the Joe Root role. Um, classy number three then has uh, i love the way you said that i hope if you're listening to this on the podcast you want to go back and see roller's face when he said that and it it's not him slagging crawley by the way this is a personal issue that me and roller have about crawley <laughs> that just played out of the podcast but yeah okay so they had the classy number three uh who um, else did they have and then you look through the middle order obviously stokes was available as captain or sort of rushed back from this this hand finger injury that he picked up at the RPL. So he captain because they thought they needed a senior player. Um, and he had Vince batted in the middle order uh, and you sort of looked down and they tried to replicate stuff like the batting depth. So uh, people like Lewis Gregory and Craig Overton came in as all-rounders. Um, you could, you know, in Overton's case, take the new ball. Um, Did Brighton Cars? Was that Brighton Cars? Yeah, Cars came in and a sort of, I suppose, you know, throughout that post-2019 period, England have been looking at different options as sort of Liam Plunkett replacements and, and Cars was one of those. Um, Parkinson at the time came in as the, the um, top leg spinner behind Adil Rashid. So he ended up with a side that even though it um, was obviously different names on the backs of the shirts, sort of looked in terms of roles quite similar to 
um, a first choice England one day team at the time. Um, and you know, but what played out was that they all had very similar roles and that they all um, played in a similar style. So the, the sort of thing that we always thought was it was the best comparison was Phil Salt coming in as the sort of Jason Roy clone. Mm. And even though England, um, you know, they didn't know that Salt would necessarily match Roy's output in terms of what he would average in the series, but they knew that he would play in the same way and try and score boundaries in the first over and try and maximise the power play. And I think at the end of the series, he was striking at something like 115, 120. I think he only scored 100 and something runs across the series. It wasn't like he had the, an amazing breakthrough, but he had a pretty solid series, and particularly in the, in the last game when he hit four falls off and over from Shaheen Afridi. You know, textbook sort of what would Jason Roy try and do in that situation? He would be trying to hit four falls off the first over to set the tone in a chase of 332, I think. I mean, that chase is interesting because I think you wrote in the book that, that it's only five times England had ever chased that. So even though they'd become a very good team, they hadn't done a lot of, you know, 320-plus chases um, or you know in that period. And yet they chase it with their third-string team, which is, I don't remember the Australia A team, for instance, doing anything that dramatic. Like, that, that seems to me like a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're already 2 0 up in the series, and I think there was obviously an element of um, an element of it being a dead rubber. But if you look at look through that uh, that game, they, they lost an early wicket as well. Milan was out in the second over. Um, Salt and Crawley, I, I think, put on a pretty decent, you know, a quick partnership. But I think they were eighty for two or something like that off the power play. But then you had um, this really important partnership between Vince, who uh, obviously scored. I think what would probably be his only international 100 from number four, got 102 off 95. And then uh, Lewis Gregory came in pretty low down. I think he was at number seven and hit 77. Um, and, you know, both of those guys, you could see Vince, you know, to some extent was probably sodding in somewhere between a sort of Root and a Morgan type role. Uh, and Gregory probably doing something not dissimilar to what a Chris Wokes would have done in that situation. But it is a really um, incredible uh, achievement and I suppose shows probably the depth of talent that England have had in white ball cricket below the top level because both of those guys are at sort of similar age they're in their early 30s now um, and in previous eras would probably have played quite a lot of one day cricket for England because of the fact that England chopped and changed all the time mm. whereas obviously one of the hallmarks of Morgan and Bayless's team was giving that that top six you know you can rattle them off long runs and the only real change was sort of that the identity of the opening pair uh which sort of flipped between Roy and Hales very briefly Hales and Bairstow and then uh Bairstow and Roy but you know below those guys there were a lot of very good players having very good county careers and playing a lot of franchise cricket as well um who didn't really get a look in and in another era might have played 40 odd ODIs but um, in Gregory's case in particular, he's not going to end up with anyone near that main, despite the fact he's a, a pretty handy player. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, 
Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Mm. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. So one of the other things that Phil Salt, I think, told you guys was that they err on the positive side. Um, and so we that's easy to do when you are Liam Plunkett and you're coming back in and you're 30 and you're told, look, you, you might get hit for some fours and sixes, but we're going to give you a year and a half in this team. This is your new role and everything else. It's a little bit different when you're a 25, when you're Lewis Gregory for instance, and you're going to come in and this might be the only time you ever get to play for England. But it does feel, and we know that they've gone even more into this now with the, you know, the baseball era. But even before that, they did get into a point where when they brought in replacements, they were saying, you are here for this reason. We back you and we want you to be positive. That's a, that's a, a message that is being pushed all the way through England white ball cricket and has been really for about five, six years now. Yeah, and there's, I think there's a story from... I think it's the first game of that series. Pakistan have bowled out for something like 140 odd in 30 something overs, so they they really drag it out. Um, you know, it's it's not a it, there's not much they can do because they lose three or four early wickets, but they poke and prod around and just prolong everyone's misery. Basically, it's like a half empty stadium in Cardiff, and it's um, a pretty grim watch. And the, the story goes, and this is not something I've stood up, which is one. You know, saying it on a podcast rather than throwing it out there on a podcast, rather than doing it in in print. It's just you and I here; no one else (laughs) listening. But the story goes that Stokes sort of told the team afterwards, you know, whatever we do in that series, make sure we don't at any point bat anything like that because no one wants to watch that. It was a waste of everyone's time. It would have been much more. You know, they would probably have had a much greater chance of winning that game if they risked the ten percent chance of getting to two hundred by having a swing rather than slowly bothering to get bowled out for 140 which is never going to be enough against uh, you know even a second and a half strong England team so yeah it's something that's been been ingrained in English cricket for a while is um you know the the way that you get into that team is not necessarily by score by you know it's not necessarily about runs it's about style as well um you know you could be the leading scorer in the blast for three years in a row scoring at a strike rate of 120 and you wouldn't get picked for England's t20 team Whereas if you had one brilliant season where you struck it 200 um, and averaged in the 30s, you would be absolutely straight in there or in the conversation at least. So it's so much of it's become about style. Um, and yeah, as you say, that's then that's then now playing out in, in the test team as well. What, what part do you think the franchise leagues have played? Like uh, it, when, when T20 cricket first started, England players just weren't very popular, partly because their season was so long and it did overlap with other things. You know, there was issues with the IPL specifically, but right around the world, it was, you know, it was outside of the Perth Scorchers um, and maybe a little bit in the Big Bash. It didn't really feel like the rest of the world thought the England players were particularly good at white ball cricket. It took a long time for everyone to come in. It seems like that's been a very good second or not. It, basically, what the franchise leagues have gone on to do is what county cricket used to do for international cricket back in the day, which was allow for players to play for their pay, um, know that they might get dropped, but also learn things from other players and in other situations. Yeah, I, I think it's massive. I think Salt is a very good example of it as well. I think he played 40-odd games in franchise leagues before making his England debut. 
um, which you know, in, in the first instance shows that um, franchises were no longer just looking at England players or people whose name they recognised. It was, um, you know, oh, this guy strikes really quickly in the blast and he's also a backup keeper. Why don't we try and get him in? Um, and in his instance, you know, he's, he was playing against Shaheen Afridi. It, it, he was, you know, facing his first ball in international cricket from Shaheen Afridi, but had played with and against him in the PSL. Um, and I remember that the, the, one of the other things from the sort of intangible side of things is the crowds, because obviously Salt has played in front of um, 40, 50 odd. I don't know how big Adelaide Oval is, but he's played in the New Year's Eve game there before his international yeah. debut. He's played in the PSL in front of some big crowds when it's not been in COVID. Um, he's played wherever else around the world. I think he's played a couple of games at the CPL by this point as well. Um, and then he, he, I remember he told me that he sort of left his international debut, which was that game in Cardiff. England win convincingly um, by nine wickets, I think. Uh, it, basically thinking, is that it? Because this was sort of second year of COVID, partial crowds, uh, a bit of a damp squib game in Cardiff where England, you know, milk it around in the run chase. And I remember, he, yeah, he said that he got on the phone to one of his mates and said, I can't believe I've just played an international game that felt like county cricket. Um, which, you know, comp- compared to what it would have been like however many years ago when you would have had players suddenly playing in front of the crowd for the first time uh, when they make their debut, suddenly seeing themselves in the paper for the first time, suddenly getting interviewed for the first time. Salt's had all of that stuff by the time he's 24, 25, and when he makes his international debut, it's underwhelming, which is, yeah, a pretty extraordinary um, thing to have happened. But, yeah, it, I think demonstrates how franchises have made players... Um, a lot readier than they were. And also England have a massive advantage in that now. And, you know, you can talk about, especially early days, there being the old clash, particularly with the IPL. But if you think of the the sort of number of leagues there are now and the number of uh, leagues specifically that take place in the English winter, it's absolutely Mm. huge. So you had, I think, over 70 English players were or England qualified players were playing in franchise leagues uh, like at the start of this year. And, it's basically yeah. November to March now, isn't it? It's kind of that mad T20 run where you, people like you and I are not actually sure which league we're watching. Yeah, and I mean, a, a lot of the time it seems like players aren't sure which day they're playing. I think there was one week, I think it was in January or February, where Tom Kohler cadmore who fits into a similar sort of category to Salt, and he's um, played a lot of league cricket already, but is probably, you know, in England's third or fourth choice white teams at the moment. Um, I think he played in three different leagues in seven days or something like that. Um, you know, it, and you have people jumping all around the place. So while that, you know, probably isn't great from a sort of global cricket point of view in terms of uh, not knowing what you're watching and who you're playing for and promising the Silhouette Sixers fans that it's been your dream to kiss the bats, it's, um, you know, from a talent ID point of view to have the opportunity mm. to play in, you know, three different Asian leagues in slightly different conditions generally and different teams and different roles is, is huge. Uh, one one other thing that England were very clear on, and it just goes back to the Phil Salt, we err on the positive side, is that they uh, they don't abuse attacking shots as long as they're a good option. And I know that when I first started working for teams, that's kind of what I did naturally, which was if someone went out, I would then go through what the field position was, what the bowler was, you know, what the matchup was. And if everything was in their favor and they still got caught at mid on, I would say they did the right thing. They just didn't, didn't connect correctly. You know, if you want to have a look at the technical stuff, feel free to talk to them about the technical stuff. That is 
not how we've talked about crew. You go. My favorite story is, of course, Verinda Sewag, who always used to say, "Why does it matter if I'm caught a deep point or second slip? I'm still out court." And I don't think that's the way we've really ever thought about cricket and attacking. That it. I'm not sure if that comes from Bayless or from Morgan or who the the basis of that is, but it makes a lot more sense than the old way of doing it, which is you're in a one day team. Of course, you're going to play attacking shots, and it meant that it's probably why so many teams have held themselves back for so long. Yeah, the, the, the best example uh, you got from sort of researching for, for White Hot for this was um, Moeen talking about the 2015 World Cup England played Sri Lanka and batted first. And at this point in Moeen's sort of weird and wonderful career, he was uh, sort of almost like a pinch hitting opener for a while for the one day team. So it was him and Ian Bell uh, opening for England. And I think they were, they were 60 after nine overs uh, for none in, against Sri Lanka on, on a really flat pitch. Um, but the sort of plan that had been set out by the management of where we should be at certain stages said that a good power play was 50 for none. And Moe basically explained it and said, well, you know, we were 60 for none of nine, and it felt like I, I hadn't really got going yet. Um, so I sort of clocked pretty early. It was a good pitch, and I needed to take it on. And he plays a pretty, a bit of a half-assed shot, but it is, you know, he sort of chips the mid-off um, in the 10th over, and he comes back and gets absolutely nailed by the management, basically saying, what were you doing? We'd already got 50. You didn't need to do that. Um, and he said, you know, that kind of summed up what that team was like at the time. England managed to get, I think they got something like 320 in that game in the end uh, and ended up losing by nine wickets with a few overs to spare. So Anger got a really good 100. Um, and, and Mo said that, you know, as soon as Morgan sort of was able to take charge of the team himself rather than sort of inheriting a Cook Moore's team, uh, it, it, that completely changed and they had the, you know, they obviously would do stuff like range hitting, pretty simple stuff that used to get criticised for, you know, if you're if you're trying to hit sixes in practice and getting caught a demon wicket and you're, you're practising to get out or something, you know, weird stuff along those lines that seems, uh, you know, more outdated than eight years ago. Um, but yeah, in, England have sort of, I think, as soon as that uh, New Zealand series started in 2015, were you know, we're not going to have anything to do with this. And, and Morgan himself was massive in that. I don't know if you remember the decider of that series against New Zealand, but Morgan was caught deep mid-wicket first ball in the run chase, um, which as England captain is sort of, you know, you think of England captains of the past and potentially doing mm. that, they would have got absolutely nailed for it. But Morgan just sort of came back in, you know, tracks his back down and says, you know, it, <laughs> It was it was the right option. I was facing. It was in my now. wheelhouse. Exactly. Yeah, I got a nice half volley on the pass from Santo. Why wouldn't I try and do it for six? Um, so yeah, that I think that sort of sets the tone for it. And that's clearly been such a big talent of England's wide ball cricket since then. Is um, you know, as long as you're out doing the right thing, um, it, or like taking on a, a, a an option that would work for you most of the time, don't worry if it's attacking. I, I remember covering the England Scotland game in 2015. And I'm pretty sure that the first half of the game, England batted quicker than they did the second half of the game. And had, was it Preston Momsen or Carl Kutzer? I can't remember who went out when they were about four wickets down. But Scotland like could have easily chased that down if they just kept a couple more wickets. And it was just like, England could have made an extra 120 runs. Yeah, it was such that. a bizarre way of of playing cricket. And they just kept doing it. It was, it was so uh, ridiculous. Um, 2016, England decide that cricket is about power. So in 2018, I'm working with Brad Hodge and we're in the nets 
and Rakin Cornwall and Odeon Smith and Andre Fletcher and, uh, you know, Karen Pollard and, and Darren Samir and they're just l- smashing the ball out of the park. And, and Hodge turned to me at that stage and he said, I don't know how anyone is out, is going to match these guys unless they start to think like them. And it's interesting because from that point forward, West Indies haven't had as much success. But basically what he was saying is that the raw power that they have, if they can you know, continue to find batting talent who can connect with it. And they have, I suppose, in Puran and Hetmai, but maybe not five or six guys like they had before. There was something else. But England were obviously thinking the exact same thing at the same time, perhaps inspired a little bit by Carlos Brathwaite, um, you know, completely smashing them around in the face in the World Cup. Because if you look at that World Cup, England were very free in the way they played, but they looked for force mm-hmm. a lot. And after then, they met, you can tell that they make a big decision to move towards sixes. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people from the England setup have, have openly said, Butler said it himself, you know, inspired by that West Indies team, absolutely. I think um, a lot of those guys have played with West Indies players and in leagues around the world as mm-hmm. the franchise cricket comes back into it. Um, I mean, Butler tells the story about how, you know, how in run chases people think about different things. So some people think about required rates and sort of trying to make sure the current rate is, you know, within touching distance of required. Some people look for... Um, you know, the difference between runs and balls and stuff like that. And Butler said he basically now, and I think for the last probably five, six years now, um, tries to look at it in terms of counting a, a number of sixes that will, um, that, that are still needed. And he learned that off, it, I think it was, um, it, it's, a, it's a really unlikely source. And I think it was Darren Bravo in the BPL when Josh Butler played a season of BPL. Well, wow. um, Darren Bravo so, played one of the greatest T20 innings of all time against <laughs> Lucia to lose me a game. So believe it or not, he had it in him. There you go. And I bet he had a lot of sixes in that. But yeah, England are, England are all over it in terms of power. And I think if you look at, if you sort of think of um, one of the players who was broken into the team, uh, the, the 15 to 19 team uh, that, has, that sort of epitomises that, it's probably Liam Livingston. Um, who obviously had this incredible breakthrough summer in 2021 where um, he goes from being a, a fringe player to suddenly I think he hits a 40-odd ball T2000 at Trent Bridge against Pakistan. He obviously has that incredible shot where he hits Harris Ralph over the, the rugby stand at Headingley. Um, and his, his whole game really is based around power. And when he talks about uh, batting, he, he almost speaks like a sort of bit like a golfer, like you hear him talk mm. about my swing and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I think he, 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 he sort of speaks about his desire to not just hit big sixes, but hit the biggest sixes. And I think he hit the biggest at both the T20 World Cup, the one in the uh, UAE, and then also in the IPL the following year in 2022. Um, and he sort of, yeah, he's all, he's all about power. And yeah, England have obviously focused on that massively. And it's, yeah, a huge part of the, the whole culture that they try and create and the whole idea of this England DNA is based around attacking cricket and power and um, yeah, boundaries and sixes and in a way that it hasn't ever been before. As you say, it's always been um, particularly pre-2015, there isn't really an England DNA at all. And if there is one, it's, you know, test match players trying and failing to adapt to one day cricket on the hoof because they've been selected two weeks before a World Cup. Well, I always say that my favourite moment of England white ball cricket was being at the MCG and watching Mark Elam come out as a pinch hitter. Um, uh, it just—it was such a bizarre moment. Uh, and, and not that Mark Elam wasn't a good cricketer, um, but like he just didn't scream pinch hitter um, in any particular way. So uh, things have changed a lot. 
Um, you talk, because this chapter is about DNA, someone did put to me recently that the England white ball team is very old. Yeah. Right? So Stokes is obviously not going to play in the ODIs, never been a huge force in T20 cricket um, in general, although he's had, you know, he was very good in that last final and he's had one great IPL season. Uh, you know, Root is quite old. David Milan is quite old. Best though. Hales. Right? Like we could go through them, right? Like Chris Jordan's still playing. Um you know, there's a lot of uh, Adil Rashid, Moen Ali, all these sorts of guys. How confident are you of the next generation? Because Harry Brook is the one that you talk about um, in this chapter where you say that he grew up watching the England players, right? And and he is he's almost emboldened by the way that they've played, right? Mm. And I think that's a really important thing. But you can be as emboldened as, as anything. If you can't, you know, the West Indies had an incredible generation, and then really haven't produced great batting talents after that, right? And so these things happen. That's just a natural thing that can happen. Because um, this chapter is partly about that that Pakistan thing and everything else, how confident are you that you're seeing a long-term DNA the way that Australia did it? Because that Australia A team was young as hell and was the Australia A team was far better than the England third 11 and i don't mean that as a as a disparaging comment that partly that was because they weren't playing oh, yeah. their best one day players at the time and so they were all available for australia a eh? because they were picking their test team but but what i'm saying is you could look at that and you go well ponting's 20 or 21 right and you know all these players are mid mid 20s there's incredible talent there whereas you look at the england team and you're like there's still a lot of 28 to 32 year olds coming through as you said the lewis gregory um uh, type players they're not gonna they might be handy in a world cup Right, you know, in that um, David Willey style, but they're probably not your front line. Do you think they're the the main six or seven players that they're going to need are going to be strong enough in the next generation? Knowing what you know about the young England players coming through, my my hunch is that they will be good enough in terms of I don't know whether they'll necessarily win England's consecutive World Cups or two out of three World Cups that it's been, but I think they will consistently compete, and I think. Yep. Um, the key thing when we sort of try to talk about this this chapter is even if you go to a point where England have a slightly fallow period, they will never or should never at least um, revert to the point of doing all the stupid stuff that they did before 2015 in, in white ball cricket and mm. one day cricket because um, they, they have a clear identity. You know how an England team is going to play. Um, and even if this generation of players, there's a lot of players, we talk about this in the book, there's a lot of players um, in English cricket, generally, but specifically white ball cricket, who were born between 1989 and 91. Um, so that's all the guys you mentioned there. So, you know, Root, Stokes, but Let's just call them the Pro 40 generation because you know that's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> um, so the Pro 40 generation, the Clydesdale Bank generation. Um, yeah, so all of those guys um, are around the same age. And as you say, there's obviously going to have to be a refresh. But I think that the, the challenge for England, as I see it, will be finding the right point to sort of start introducing those guys more regularly, um, just as much as anything, because of the fact there's an ICC event every single year. So I think there will be a natural refresh after the 2020 T20 World Cup, because I think they'll look at the Champions Trophy in 25 and think that's the least important upcoming ICC event. Um, and that, that's a good opportunity to refresh. But I think if you look at a, a batting lineup of England players under a certain age, you know, it, you could have Salt and Jacks opening. Brooke, I think, is a long-term uh, solution as well. You have it, you have a sort of, I think, with county cricket as well and just the number of 
players involved in it, there's always going to be someone coming through. So like James Rue at the moment is um, the guy that a lot of people are getting very excited about, mainly as a, as a um, sort of four-day batter at the moment, but he's scoring 50 over 100s as well in the um, in the, the Metro Bank Cup. Um, and it, personally, I think that um, the, the key thing from the England White Ball point of view is that they will no longer go back to doing that that dumb stuff um, and that they will have an identity at least. And yeah. even if they miss out on the semi-final once or twice, um, there will be a next generation coming through and they will be playing roughly in the same way. They're not going to go back to being a team that tries to get uh, 270 and defends it. They're always going to be a team that aims high and sometimes misses it and accept that that's fun. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. And I think that's what the chapter is really about, isn't it? Um, it's it's about the fact that they've changed their DNA. It won't always work because you can't really, you know, there is no um, Joe Root replacement or even an Owen Morgan replacement as the team currently stands, right? There's not an Adol Rashid replacement. It's probably not a genuine Moe Nally replacement. Like there's some players that are, you know, just going to be tough. Whereas there are other guys where you just like, they can probably find maybe another Plunkett and they can, you know, probably find another Chris Jordan and those sorts of guys. So no, no, it's very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti, Saina Payin, and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. <laughs>